listening to On the NBA Beat on Almighty Baller Radio, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Aaron Fishman with my co-host, Lauren Lee Chen, and we're proud to present another action-packed episode this week. You may know our second guest from NBA TV's The Starters, formerly known as The Basketball Jones, a hilarious and informative TV show and podcast all about the league and its most consequential and hysterical happenings. It's the one and only Tass Mellis. The proud owner of a custom, authentic Raptors Jorge Garbajosa jersey, which he prefers to wear tucked in, Tass will discuss general NBA topics, including the inevitability of a Cavaliers-Warriors finals matchup for the third consecutive year. But first, we'll begin with Paul Garcia, NBA writer for Project Spurs and founder of Analyzing the League. In college, before his basketball writing days began, Paul was the drummer for a hardcore band that featured double bass and no shortage of screaming, among other things. We'll begin by discussing the Spurs-Warriors series, most closely focusing on the monumental impact of Kawhi Leonard's ankle injury. Why am I still talking? Let's bring on Paul, but don't forget to stay tuned for Tass Malice after the break. Hey Paul, we're pleased to have you on. How's it going guys? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Our pleasure. It's good to talk here. Spurs, Warriors. The Spurs had such a phenomenal season. It's really unfortunate what's happened with Kawhi Leonard and the ankle injuries, but just a tremendous individual season for him and team season. Have to give the Spurs their due, but we've seen the drastic difference when he's on and off the court, just in games one and two alone. Do you have any updates for us on his prognosis and when we can expect to see him potentially back on the court? He's still listed as questionable. Coach Pop wouldn't say for sure that he's going to play in Game 3 Saturday. The most update I can give is like an observation point. So yesterday he got off the plane. One of the one of the guys that I know from KSAT.com here in San Antonio, he was filming Kawhi getting off the plane. He didn't notice an, a noticeable limp. Uh, he didn't have any kind of like medical wear or, or boot on his leg. So he just walked from the plane to his car normally. At practice today, he did not practice a fallout of the guys from the, the media circuit. And they didn't, they didn't report that he was, that he was practicing. So, and the, the team has not sent out any kind of official medical update outside of that. He's still basically questionable. Yeah. At least there is that long layoff that we've had between games two and three, three rest days, which is something not typically seen over the course of the NBA season. But before we get too far into other things, we have to talk about the situation that led to that ankle re-injury for Kawhi. It was exacerbated in a now much analyzed play where Pachulia stepped under him as he was shooting. Coach Greg Popovich had some pointed comments about that play, calling it a reckless act, basically calling Zaza a dirty player regardless of his intent, comparing the situation to when people are charged with manslaughter, which sounds kind of ridiculous, but do you agree with him in that sentiment? I was actually very surprised that, that Pop did this. He's never had a, a, a history of actually calling somebody out. You know, obviously he's quite frustrated that they really don't have a chance without Kawhi. Honestly, from my Spurs fans that want to hear this, you know, a lot of my followers don't really put this on Twitter, but I honestly, I'm, I'm ready to move on from it. You know, it happened. It's a basketball injury. 
whether he meant to or not. I really, I'm more in the camp of he's a big dude. He does, he's not fundamentally there to do a proper closeout. I'm not sure he was targeting Kawhi's foot on purpose. It's something that any shooter, I mean, I, I play pickup ball with my friends and, and you're always just observant of that. Like, that's why I always like when I do, do a jump shot, I space on my legs because you're just, there's always that risk. You know, it's a contact game. If somebody's going to get hurt, you know, and, and so I, I don't feel like it was malicious on, on, on his part. Maybe it was. It wasn't intentional, but, you know, for Pop to do that, that was kind of like, that was surprising to me. He did what he did, and they kind of just got to move on. The series is going on, you know, Golden State's up 2-0, well, and I think the team needs to move on and try to work on what they have right now. Yeah, I do agree with you in thinking that especially Pop's comments were probably largely out of frustration losing such an impact player like Kawhi. As you said, these types of situations, they do come up a lot when you have a big man closing out on a jump shooter. People found video from games one and two of LaMarcus Aldridge in very similar looking situations, closing out on Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. So regarding the intent issue that Greg Popovich brought up, I'm guessing from your previous answer that you don't agree that it should be judged independently of intent. Yeah, I mean, obviously they put the rule in place and, you know, Bruce Bowen was a guy for Pop who used to do it. He had, he had occasions where he'd do that as well. But, you know, I, I, just like the, the way Zaza did, I just I feel like it wasn't something that, you know, the league can just sit there and look at and say, does he need to get suspended and they increase the, the penalty, push forth. And then, like, you were you were mentioning how, how they started looking at how LaMarcus closed out on Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. And honestly, I haven't seen any of the film because I just, I, like, I don't want basketball to become that. We're, we're just kind of, like, watching every single way that the guy's getting injured and watching, like, how, uh, you know, just, like, be, be that nitpicky with it. I feel like it was a, a, bad, a bad play. It happened. They got to move on and... I'm not one for just sitting there and kind of just microanalyzing. I mean, just analyzing it to death. Uh, it's it's already happening. You know, Kawhi's obviously they're, they're hoping he can get close to 100% for Saturday or in Game Four. But you know, they're, they're not going to get him back. And what are you going to do? I mean, outside of I mean, here's really what I think. You know, I told somebody this: Can they, the Spurs pick a player basically to force them to sit out for a game? You know, is that is that where we're going to go with this? When, when somebody injures your star, is that what they're going to do? You know, take off one of their all stars? But that's not going to happen. So, yeah, I'm all for just moving forward with that. Yeah, I'm with you there. Before that happened, the Spurs were actually able to get off to a really great start against the Warriors in Game 1. What in particular was going right for them during that time, and did they have a specific game plan going into the series? Yes, they wanted to They wanted to use their size. They wanted to use Marcus Aldridge's uh, Pau Gasol, their high-low passing. Obviously, Kawhi Leonard was going to kind of ease himself back in. That's why he had a really strong second quarter. So they went right away. They're, they're, with Kawhi on the floor, they're able to kind of handle the Warriors' early pressure. They can uh, get, get the ball from left to right, get it um, inside out. And they, they were really controlling the pace, the tempo, and, and they were playing really good defense, switching as much as they could, talking to each other, communicating on those off-screens that the Warriors run really well. And that was all going well for them in the first quarter. Then the second quarter, I think Andre Iguodala, they said, has like a knee issue. So he wasn't really guarding Kawhi, so it was Matt Barnes who got put on him, and Kawhi was just basically doing whatever he wanted. So Matt Barnes getting to the free throw line, hitting three-pointers, uh, mid-range shots. So, so the Warriors really had no answer for Kawhi in those first two quarters. And of course, the third quarter, the Warriors definitely picked up their intensity defensively, but the Spurs were still handling it. They were still able to handle that pressure until that play happened that Kawhi obviously hurt his foot and then the Warriors and they went on an 18-0 run and that was a ball game right there. Do you think that strategy can be re-implemented when Kawhi does return to the lineup if it happens soon? Yes, I, I think that, well, yes and no, actually, because uh, the Pau Gasol factor, he is ever since like the third quarter of game one, Steph Curry has per- just constantly targeted, targeting him and pick and rolls, getting him like just rotating out, out to him and, and trying to swarm him. They're trying to trap him. And Curry's just making Powell, you know, whether he's taking the rim or finding one of his teammates, he's just really breaking down the Spurs' defense. So now I think it, it's at a point where it's really a problem for the Spurs. And I, even if Kawhi's back, I'm not sure they can start Powell again because of how much of a liability he is on defense. 
So I think that they might go like somebody like Dwayne Dedman or go a little bit smaller with Aldridge at the five. So for now, I think that even with Kawhi back, they can handle the pressure a lot more, but I, don't, I think there definitely needs to be a change to the starting lineup. I think for those Spurs fans listening, this will be frustrating to hear, but is there any way to contain this Warriors offense with and without Kawhi Leonard? Which defensive looks can they actually showcase to try to slow down this juggernaut? That's, that's, that's an interesting question, actually, because you know, I rewatched the entire first quarter of the game, too. And the Warriors, man, they just had so many open after open look. You know, they didn't make a lot, and they also they obviously turned the ball over too because when they get in transition, they can be a little careless with the ball. But they have so many opportunities just to, like I said, Steph's the main guy who, who just breaks your defense down, especially with a guy like Pau Gasol out there. There's one lineup I think that can work. It's uh, Deadman at the five. But the only problem with that, which is why Pop hasn't really been playing him, is that he slows down the ship on offense. And he can't shoot from the outside. He, he, he's obviously just a rim runner. But defenses are good enough now in the playoffs to take that away. I don't think he's even had an alley-oop dunk in the playoffs. Um, that's very rare for him these days. And so he's like one skill that he's good on offense. It really just makes it easier for Golden State to double team, to throw different trapping actions, or, or just um, hover around on defense. They can try to go small, like they did against Houston for a few possessions here and there. But I don't know if their personnel can last that way for 40 minutes. That's, that's too hard. They don't have a team built to play small. They have a, a team built to play big. And so that, that's something that, that they have trouble with, especially as containing Steph. And then the Warriors haven't even thrown out their best stuff yet. You know, there was like two possessions that first quarter where they did like a 4-1 pick and roll with Draymond and Steph, and the Spurs had no answer for it. it was, they were toast. They haven't even brought out the Steph-Kevin Durant pick and roll if they need to bring that out. I think they're saving that for Cleveland. And here's another part. Clay Thompson hasn't even gotten going yet. He's actually had a lot of good open looks. He's just obviously missed in the first two games. Imagine when Clay has like an 18 to 25-point game. That's, that's on its way as well. Yeah, as talented as the Spurs are, I can only imagine just how scary and imposing it is of a challenge to face this stacked Warriors team. So there's this perception, and I think it's in large part true, that Popovich coached teams are just so disciplined. When a key player goes down with injury, it's just the next man up mentality. They're just business-like professionals. They just go about their job every day with the same passion and energy. So I'm curious, and I know this is kind of hard as a reporter to answer, but from your perspective, was there any deflation in Game 2 after losing Game 1 the way they did, blowing that 25-point lead after the Kawhi Leonard injury? Or do you think it was just more of a natural drop-off of a team without someone so good on both sides of the ball? I think both of those are cases, like 50-50 part of each answer. Um, you know, after Game 1, Manu Ginobili was, was on the record of saying, you know, he would have rather lost game one by getting blown out because he says that's always easy. When you get punched in the chin, you can just kind of get ready for that. It helps you. It kind of motivates you more. When you had that game in your grasp, whether you were up by 20 and you lost your star and you just lost that game, you know, it's possession by possession where one three by LaMarcus maybe in, uh, wins it for San Antonio in the corner. When it's that type of loss, he says it's just mentally deflating and you, it's really hard to get amped up for game two. So I think the part of it is that they, they just didn't had that fire, that edge, which Coach Pop talked about in his post-game press conference in Game 2, where he kind of just felt like they had already given up, like they just felt they couldn't beat this team without Kawhi. And then also the other part is just, I, I really just point to their, their their star who's left, which is LaMarcus Aldridge. You know, he just tentative, uh, passing up open shots. He's, he's, he says that the reason why he was passing so much is because he thought they would just double him initially. But like Coach Pop mentioned, he needs to be a force aggressively. Just take some, post somebody up, try to get some free throws, draw that pressure from the defense, and then you can kind of observe the floor and kick it out. And he just looked tentative right from the start. Uh, the Warriors put Zaz on him, and he really had no, no other answer. So I think it's definitely part of both. They, they kind of give up on themselves, and then they, you just saw how 
how good Golden State is defensively with Kawhi before, how much they can just basically put that much pressure on them. Was the giving up on themselves that you just alluded to, do you think also present in game one? And maybe it was kind of more of like a, a shell-shocked thing where still in that second half they're trying to figure out what exactly just happened? Yeah, I think you can see, especially in that 18-0 run. I mean, Pop was playing different guys in different lineups, throwing Simmons out there, then he's throwing Kyle Anderson, then DeJounte Murray. He's just trying to find an answer. They could not score. You know, the, the Warriors obviously ratcheted up their defense. It's easier to guard San Antonio without Kawhi. And they were just, they were searching for something. And when, when Bodice made that quick run, that 18-0 run, I think obviously that their, their fourth quarter, they, I think they only had six points in the first six minutes. They were still struggling to find some offense. In the end, they got some guys to, to step up, like Murray, uh, Jonathan Simmons, Monte Ginobili hit a lot of big shots to make it a possession-by-possession possession game. But since the, I think since after that, that they couldn't win it that way, that, that's got to be like demoralizing for them. Narratives like that, fans like to talk about and debate. But a lot of times, the actual product on the floor on both ends is more important and more consequential. Do you think then that fans have anything to worry about with such an experienced team led by Greg Popovich, who just has such a stellar reputation in the coaching ranks. The rest of the series, I mean, obviously with Kawhi Leonard either out or severely hampered, they're at a significant disadvantage. But to what extent do you think that the mental aspect of it, they'll be able to get under control and, and be like how we would expect from a team like that? I think just based on, the, on, their, on their track record, that they're going to respond. Whether they win or lose, I think they're going to definitely put up a fight in Game 3 that's with or without Kawhi. I think you're going to see a different San Antonio team. Yeah, I don't. I can't see them getting blown out. You know, second time. I mean, it could get a, become a blowout, but I'm saying like at least initially, it won't be like this game was over in the first quarter with like a minute left. Those were like a 17 point game. It was toast. This is one where like I could see them fighting to like the third quarter and then maybe Golden State goes on a run. So I definitely think that just based on their track record, the Spurs usually respond well to, to losses, whether that's with or without Kawhi. I think that they're going to at least put a better a better fight. At least the defense is where they really got to come out. It's just whether they're struggling to score on offense, they got to try to do their best defensively to hold Golden State. I know we've been harping on this impact of missing a guy like Kawhi for a lot of this interview, but I think that's natural when a guy who's an MVP candidate who had one of the best seasons that we've seen in a long time goes down for your team. So can you just talk about his great season, how he was able to become so efficient on both sides of the floor and take that next step forward, and also the effect of losing a guy like that on both sides of the floor for your team? Sure. Yeah, I mean, his his season was just remarkable. I mean, obviously, he doesn't have the defensive end every night. He guards the, the best player for, for most of the possessions. It's nice to have Danny Green by your side as well when you're Kawhi Leonard because Danny can take a guy like James Harden for a few quarters in the regular season. So first, he does on the defensive end. You already knew that part. And then on the offensive end, he's got the, the total package. You know, he's, he can get to the free throw line. He can make the mid-range jumper. He can make three-pointer at efficient rates. He can he can drive. He can, he can draw fouls. He did a better job just during the regular season of kind of knowing when to step up his, his game is scoring load. So he would, he would wait a lot of times. So he'd get like maybe like five, seven points in each quarter. And then like in that fourth quarter, he'd just explode when the team needed him. That was good of him to, to kind of get, keep everybody involved as much as he could. His assist numbers aren't high, but he knew that he had to let other ball handlers create or let Marcus get some possessions. So I think that he, he definitely had, had, had a really good season. The one thing you see with him is that obviously he doesn't show any kind of emotion, whether he makes a dunk, whether he's blocking somebody, he doesn't, you know, hit his chest or anything. He just moves on to the next play. Covering him, it's, it's, it's hilarious because some of the answers are just so literal. Like you could literally just like ask Siri those answers and show. She might put forth more emotion than he does in the answers. And then obviously you see it now in the playoffs. They survived that Rockets series without him in that game six and, and late in that game five. But the Rockets were the 18th ranked defense. You kind of 
don't know what really happened to them mentally, especially James Harden. But you can you can kind of the, the way the Spurs played without without Kawhi in that Rocket series was they moved the ball side to side. They were almost like the 2014 team, their offense, and that's a way to break down a, a bad defensive team like Houston. But against Golden State in their home building, you know, without without your best ball handler, it, it was just so hard for San Antonio to even enter the ball into the post. It was hard for them to make left to right passes. Golden State was intercepting those, putting a lot of active pressure on them. And then I think another thing that nobody's talking about is that the, you see the absence of Tony Parker as well. There's really three ball handlers who can kind of penetrate the defense off a of pick and roll and get into the paint for San Antonio. And that's Kawhi, Tony Parker, and Jonathan Simmons. The Spurs are without two of those guys. And Simmons has basically become that in these last like two series. He really wasn't, Pop was very inconsistent with his minutes. He would, he would play him a lot of minutes one night. He'd get mad at him and bench him like the next three games in a row. So Simmons is almost like just like a brand new player to them in that he's getting this, this steady progression. He's actually looked good for them. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Jonathan Simmons. He's a guy that's really caught the public's attention during the playoffs, especially with how he performed against the Rockets last series. He seems like just another one in a line of unheralded players stepping up when called upon for the Spurs. His story is great. We know now that he had to pay for an open tryout to join the Austin Toros. How has he improved so much over the course of his career, and what does he mean to the Spurs? Like, like I mentioned earlier, he, he really was, um, he, he showed some improvement. He, especially in the playoffs, I mean, that, that's something I, I honestly didn't even expect. Because in the season, he was like their, their third, he was Kawhi's backup, basically. He was, he was their, their backup three. He'd get all the minutes from about October up to about the All-Star break. After the All-Star break, something happened where he just got out of favor of Pop, and Pop started giving Kyle Anderson those minutes. So everybody's, you know, it's almost like he's prepping Kyle Anderson to become that, that backup three for the playoffs. And even again in the Memphis series, you go back and look at some of his numbers, he wasn't playing a lot. He some, had some inconsistent nights. But it was that Rocket series where they needed somebody who could drive to the lane. He did a great job of obviously taking advantage of James Harden. That kind of just brought his confidence up. And now that he's in this role where, hey, Tony Parker's out and Kawhi's obviously out too. But even when Kawhi's on the floor, you're like the second ball handler who can actually get into the paint, draw a free throw. You can kick out to um, your teammates. He's like their second guy who can only do it on the team. You know, Monty Ginobili used to be able to do that, but at age 39, that's a difficult thing for him to do consistently. Danny Green can't do that. DeJounte Murray's still a little young. Patty Mills is just a guy who shoots off screens most of the time. So, so he, th- I think it's just that the, the responsibility that got handed to him in these last two playoff series is what's really made him his stock rise. He's a restricted free agent this coming summer, and he's really making it tough for San Antonio to try to retain him now that every team's watching, especially a lot of teams with cast space. Do you think he's reached the ceiling, or do you think there's still room to grow for him? I think there's a little bit of room to grow. It's obviously his jump shot. That's, that's probably the one deficiency in his game is he's an inconsistent shooter from mid-range and the outside. Teams do back off him on purpose. But, you know, with the, with an increased role, you're, you're seeing in these two playoff series, with an increased role, with more minutes, with more responsibility, look what he's doing. So if a team makes him maybe like their second or third option, who knows what he could do. He is age 27 already, so, you know, he's already up there. He doesn't have a lot of growth. Outside of once he loses like his, his athleticism, he's a, he's a crazy dunker, a shot blocker. But I think that if he can kind of work on that, on that jump shot in the next three years, he can become a really good player for, for a team, whether that's the Spurs or elsewhere. There's one thing I wanted to ask also about next season in the point guard position. You alluded to Tony Parker's absence a little earlier. Not a lot of people have been talking about that, but he's a critical part of their team. Patty Mills has had a pretty good postseason for the most part filling in, getting more minutes. He'll be an unrestricted free agent. And I know Tony Parker is both getting up there in age and mileage, but also apparently he'll need about maybe eight months or so to fully recover. It's a bad quadricep injury. How do you see that point guard position shaking out next year and this offseason? 
That's an interesting question. Um, like you mentioned, I, I think that um, one of our project spurs writers, Aaron Prime, he does a lot of like medical research and stuff. And so he, he he's kind of like projecting like a January return for Tony at best. So that's kind of where I'm, I'm putting his timeline is why I like Aaron's work. And then, with, you know, you have Murray there. He's a, he's a really talented kid. I went to scout school last summer in Las Vegas. And they were talking about some of the picks that had just got selected in the draft. They were just saying that there was one red flag of Murray in his file where he, he could have been like a, like a lottery projection, but there was just something in, in that scouts were seeing it with him. I'm not sure what it was that they didn't tell us at that, that conference, but um, he's definitely got all-star potential down the road. He checks all the boxes, you know, athletic, can drive to the rim, inconsistent shooter. He has the length the, to, to become a really good defender if he really tries, puts on some muscle and some mass. So they got to get Murray a, a, an actual role next season, whether that's as a starter, since Tony's out until probably January, or if he's going to come off the bench. The problem, though, is they do want to keep T- Patty Mills. They love him for, for being like, whether that's like a, a backup for Manu as far as like just being like the two guard who shoots is like a lot of their scoring option next season. But it comes at what price are you going to pay for Patty? Because that's like, you know, you don't want to be paid three point guards so much money or go out and get another point guard. Like, you know, there's obviously George Hill rumors. There's Chris Paul rumors. Kyle Lowry's been a, been a name. You know, I think that, that Murray's definitely their future, so I can't see them getting a star point guard. But, but Patty, I think it comes down to what, what do other teams offer him? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And I think that Mills will demand a lot of money. So we'll have to see if the Spurs are able to retain his services. One more thing on the series, though. So LaMarcus Aldridge, given the Kawhi Leonard injury, is shouldering such a heavy load right now offensively. He had possibly the worst season of his career. How has he been able to become the focal point of an offense again? And what would you like to see from him for the Spurs to be more competitive in these games without Kawhi Leonard? That Houston series is really good for him personally because, you know, with, with Kawhi, he got to be like the old Portland Mark, so we, you know, down here in San Antonio, we call him. Like, you can just pull up any film from like 2015, 2014 and with him in a red jersey, with a Portland jersey. He's like a totally different player you rarely see in San Antonio. And that, that Houston series, he really looked at it. It's just he, he gets so tentative where he can catch on the, on the block he either just waits for the defense to kind of collapse on him before making his read and either shooting or trying to drive. And I think that's what, that's what you'd like to see for him, whether Kawhi's here or not, is, is just becoming more aggressive. Even if, you know, take your turnaround shot, but do it quickly. Don't, don't wait for the defense to kind of collapse on you and put you in a bad situation where you're going to be turnover prone, like, which is what the Warriors did in game two. And then, you know, just, it just feels like, you know, a guy like, like, uh, he had Clay Thompson matched up on him on a possession, Steph Curry, and he's taking jumpers over these guys in the last series too against like Eric Gordon or James Harden. He'd take jumpers. You know, you just want to see him. It's the old school thought, but you just want to see him get a little bit more physical and just be more aggressive, get to the foul line, put up shots, you know, like he used to in Portland, whether that's because the defense is better with the Warriors, that's obviously part of it. But you definitely just want to see him like not, not as tentative. We really enjoyed catching up with you just on the series, breaking it down so far. And we'll be following the rest of it. Hopefully Kawhi Leonard is able to get healthy or healthier in a hurry. We really want to see him back on the court. But just the final question before we let you go. That game six performance where they just performed really well without Leonard on the court. Have you ever seen such a disappearing act like what we saw from James Harden? Just a a guy who had an MVP type season. And just his contributions were virtually non-existent in that game. I mean, I was obviously very puzzled. I mean, I, there's obviously the one explanation I've heard is that maybe because since game five, they started, yeah, Tony started playing up, starting with the, um, the small ball right from the get-go. So he had a guard, Pal Gasol, and Marcus Aldridge. And, and though they didn't post him a lot and score a lot on him, they definitely made him use his legs. They backed him down a lot. That's that's tough to do when you're like 6'5", and you're having to post 6'11", 7'0", dudes. That could have been part of it, that maybe his legs were just drained by game six. 
But another theory, obviously, this theory is that Shea Serrano of The Ringer put out on a podcast was one thing I saw, I saw on Twitter the night after Game Five was like Rockets fans was killing James Harden. I mean, like here in San Antonio, there's there's certain players that get the the fan the fan hate every game. It's usually Parker, it's usually Danny Green, or Marcus Aldridge. Those are the three guys. You never see fans target Kawhi ever. That's like their guy. <laughs> they whatever touch him, he's like untouchable. It was surprising. You go down the Twitter streamline of, of the Houston fans after Game Five, and they were so angry at Harden, that ball hog, this and that, shooting too much, doesn't pass, the, the worst offense. You know, you saw it in that overtime. I think this the entire Rockets team was straight personally. But so I kind of wonder, here's what Shea, like, basically his theory was that, like, did James kind of just throw the game on purpose to, like, show the fans, hey, if I don't shoot, look, look what this team is. Because he really had two shots by the halftime. He had only taken two shots in the first half. And so it's almost like, was he playing a, this is what I'm really worth to, to the team. I wonder if that's a part we might find out later. Somebody might break that story. I don't know. Or if not, you know, <laughs> the fatigue factor. I, I just I don't know about throwing the game. I know I know that's not exactly what was meant by it, but I think he's just far too competitive to be playing these mind games for contractual purposes. I don't know, but it is an interesting thing to think about and discuss. Like I said before, it was a great time having you on the show. We'd love to do it again. Enjoy the rest of the series and keep up the good reporting. Thank you guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Definitely coming. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. Hey, Tass, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for asking me on, guys. I appreciate it. Yep. And first of all, congratulations to the starters on reaching your goal of 50 wedgies in this NBA season. Did you ever think that this day would come? (laughs) Yeah, some of us uh, appear on Jeopardy and win uh, twice. Some of us reach our goal of attaining 50 wedgies which is obviously attained by actual NBA players, and we just count them. Um, Well, you know, the 50 wedgies, the number, uh, it'll never be recorded in the record books because every single NBA record is either a regular season record or a playoff record, and we were so desperate to get to 50 wedgies. We just wanted to get that round number that we included both the regular season and the playoffs, so that's unfortunate. Um, but I guess I did expect it because we included the postseason. What I didn't expect is that NBA play-by-play men and color commentators quite often give us a shout out when a wedgie happens live. Like the you know the the 50th wedgie didn't get a shout out because it was a, it was a real quick one. It was off a free throw. The 49th one, Ian Eagle shouted out the wedgie right off the bat. I mean that it's become if we've added anything to the NBA lexicon, it's wedgie. Uh, although, you know, we didn't come up with the term. We, we've popularized it a, a little bit. Yeah, and you had that great video with Shaq when you were getting close to that number, which yeah. I implore all the listeners here to look up if they haven't seen it yet. But on to more uh, on-the-court topics. This is a topic that we've asked about starting from the preseason this year. And now that we're in the conference finals, it seems more and more certain that we're on our way to seeing our third straight Cavaliers-Warriors finals matchup. How do you think that inevitability of these two great super teams affects how we cover the league? And do you think 
the cons of that, you know, um, only two teams really have a chance outweigh the pros of being able to cover a league with these dominant teams and superstars? Well, that's a great question. As far as how we cover it, uh, I mean, I think we all sort of hit a lull at this point as we're talking, the conference finals are going on. I think our energy levels as people who cover it are low and fans out there, uh, likewise, I mean, they're just not tuning in. Uh, you know, I've had, you know, multiple people sort of text me uh, as these playoffs have gone on and, and are just kind of in cruddy moods because, uh, you know, as, as fast as the news cycle is these days, you know, we want more and more and more. And the NBA at this point is sort of giving us less and less and less because there just aren't as many great games going on right now. And, and the bigger problem is that it sort of drags over two months. Uh, that being said, you know, that's that's a huge con. Uh, I think, you know, uh, can we sort of, as uh, people who cover the league, keep up the energy level to get people um, tuned in and reel them back in, uh, you know, when June 1st hits and, and that first game tips off? Which, again, I, I totally agree. It's inevitably going to be those two teams. But on the other side, the ratings, I think, are going to be through the roof. Uh, you know, historically, like we talk about the 80s Celtics and Lakers, this is going to be, you know, one of those juggernauts that everyone's going to tune in for. And we're going to be talking about as, you know, the, as you said, the first three peat of, of two teams coming out of each conference, that's going to get a, a heck of a conversation going, you know, like people love talking about sports, you know, 10 years from now, you know, which team was the better team, uh, the, the whole Draymond Green scenario leaving, the second time they met being suspended, the first time there were injuries to the Cavs and Kyrie and Kevin Love. So I guess also this is hopefully the first time everyone's going to be extremely healthy. So, so there's that aspect. Uh, people just like the great team. So uh, to me, that's not the problem that these two teams are are far and away better. I think the, the bigger problem is that the playoff season just drags. I, I think the NBA absolutely knows that. And um I think it's uh, something that they want to get sort of closer to the the goal of March Madness, not single elimination. That's that's crazy talk, but um, to have more riding on each game, and whether it's a best of three series for the first two round, I know that also sounds crazy talk because how much money comes in through the gates, but uh, I don't know. This the season is just seemingly drags. So, and maybe you're also talking to a guy who does a daily show, and so uh, at this point. You know, this, the playoffs have been going on a month and we're basically have another month to get till the end. Uh, so, um, you know, that it's it sort of mentally it is a bit of a drain knowing that uh, these two teams will eventually meet. But big picture, uh, the ratings are, are going to be ridiculous because, you know, we're you know, we've got all these MVPs inevitably going to be facing each other. MVPs and former MVPs, uh, you know. Just, just so much, so much storyline buildup, and uh, again, hopefully both teams are healthy. Yeah, I think you made a lot of great points, and we saw that with the dominance of Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Ratings went through the roof. People just loved those super players, super teams. Now we have a couple super teams at least, so that's exciting to see. But I do agree with the challenge that you referenced, and I think the starters and. A lot of other outlets have done a really good job this season of highlighting the fascinating uh, storylines that are really worth telling, like Isaiah Thomas, his emergence, for instance. And speaking of that, the Celtics have just had a phenomenal season. 
the San Antonio Spurs, 60-plus wins for them again. So I don't want to sell them short, even though I think it appears highly unlikely that either of those teams will advance. That said, how would you assess either's chances of winning even a game right now in this series? I know a wise former Celtic once said anything is possible, but things are looking difficult right now. The Spurs' chances of winning... Uh, were far greater than the Celtics coming into the series. Uh, you know, they could have got game one. They should have got game one if Kawhi Leonard doesn't get hurt. And, um, you know, that what they are sort of uh, predicated upon is being mentally tough, as they showed they're a little bit mentally tougher, sorry, Lauren, than the Houston Rockets are. Um, that I think that was pretty evident. Uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard went out in that first game when, you know, they had that monstrous lead. Uh, and then they sort of uh, just crumbled in game two. That leads me to believe that they don't believe in themselves, as Greg Poffert said after game two. So I think their mental strength, which is extremely important to them, uh, is kind of fading in this series. I think they're going up against a team that they know is better. So, uh, you know, there was there was a tiny bit of hope for the Spurs is what I'm trying to get at. And game one, they should have got it. But on the other on the other side. It's been a great year, Aaron. You're right. Um, but, um, you know, I think the Celtics have basically won their game seven already, have won their Super Bowl, uh, getting to this conference finals. Uh, they're just outclassed. Um, not only did they win the conference finals, they also got the number one pick uh, coming up in the draft. So uh, I think that vindicates everything that is going on in that organization. Uh, they waited. They didn't trade for Paul George. They didn't trade for a superstar. Now they've got the number one pick. Now they've got a solid team. Now they've got all these assets and they didn't go for it. You mentioned Michael Jordan. They didn't go for it up against the Michael Jordan of this era and LeBron James. They, they didn't just, you know, try and get, you know, Jimmy Butler for a couple of years. And uh, they're, they're, they're waiting for the window as yeah. Danny Ainge was, was a part of, you know, the, the eighties there. Um, he, you know, he understands that the LeBron window, as it closes, uh, his team's window can open up. So bright futures, um, but obviously disappointing. Uh, I, what I believe, you know, I think the Celtics might get game two as we record this in between game one and game two. But um, what's more disappointing is that the Spurs really, uh, Kawhi just went down. I mean, that's that's the most disappointing part. Yeah, it really is. And you did a great job of anticipating my next question. It's almost like you do this for a living. <laughs> so Brad Stevens and Danny Ainge, they've really played the long game, as you alluded to. And now they have all these assets. They just got the number one pick. All these young guys that have been developed really well. How excited are you to see where this team goes from your last answer? It seems like you're pretty excited. I also want to know just more broadly how difficult will it be for other franchises to kind of replicate this rebuilding plan that they've been so successful with? Well, that was, you know, Lauren, you mentioned off the top, you know, we've talked about Golden State uh, and uh, Cleveland inevitably meeting from the beginning of the season to this point. Since the beginning of the season, I've been talking about wanting a team to get up there in sort of the Cleveland stratosphere. And uh, so it's exciting that. The Celtics are on the way. Unfortunately, it didn't happen this year, uh, uh, but uh, they're definitely on the way. So I'm, I'm pumped about that. Uh, you know, the the regular season. I, I, I tweeted this yesterday, and I and I and I was definitely being facetious. But at the same time, when I said the Cleveland Cavaliers are going to win 40 games next year and still make the NBA Finals, 
uh, because they, you know, can put it into second gear and just chill out and, and relax and, and obviously turn it on whenever they want. Uh, that, you know, it, it's a bit of a sour point uh, during the regular season. The fact that in the East, um, Braun can do what he wants and, and get there. The West is a bit of a different story. But uh, yeah, I, I am pumped. Uh, and how hard is it to emulate the the building blocks that have been put in place? You know, it's, it's all about player development and uh, making your players great. It's as simple as that to me. Obviously, you know, you got to get draft picks and things have to sort of fall as they may. And, and I think, Aaron, you're alluding to the fact that they made that incredible trade for them that they got right. those right. picks, the picks from. And, and can you really, you know, uh, pull the, the rug out from a, another GM's feet the way Danny Ainge did to, to Billy King? It, probably not. But, I, I, you know, I look at the Spurs and, and they just... To me, they're they're obviously the model of, of many teams, and, and they should be the model of player development. The way they made Kawhi into a superstar, um, you know, um, scouting the way they drafted Tony Parker from abroad and, and Manu Ginobili from abroad, um, and tanking the way they got the number one pick in in, in 1997 for Tim Duncan. David Robinson injury, yeah, <laughs> yes. So you know, it's tough. It's tough. It, listen, this the league that we love. It, it's Inevitably, it's driven by superstars, and uh, that's that's the way it is. We're watching LeBron, the Michael Jordan of this era. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned the MVPs that Kevin Durant and, and Steph Curry have won, and that's why they're going to meet in the finals because this is uh, a team or a sport where you know the individual has has played such a huge role in in making his teammates better. So uh, just create superstars. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> Just a quick historical question for you. Hopefully, I don't put you on the spot. But do you have any idea if there was a bigger underdog as a number one seed than we're seeing with the Celtics this season? It's so weird. I don't off the top of my head. I thought, uh, you know, the the when they came into the series or into the playoffs, I should say, you know, the Celtics having won 51 games and the um, Chicago Bulls having won 41 games. I'm sorry, it's 53 and 41. But the 12 win gap, I thought, man, is that the the smallest gap that we've seen between a one and eight seed? And, and there has been smaller. Uh, but um, yeah, it's a it's a strange one, Aaron. I don't have an answer for that. Uh, it's uh, it's something that the league is looking at. I know we talked about the two months sort of uh, extended window that we have in the postseason, but something that the league is also has to be looking at is 82 games. And uh, I, I know it's it seems extremely far-fetched that the league would ever shorten the season uh, in terms of number of games, and, and that definitely could be the case. But, I mean, it's crazy that a, a team uh, like Cleveland can be 51 and 31 and, and can just, you know, not really have a problem with being the two seed. Uh, I, I guess... I guess that'll change uh, as you know the Celtics make their their pick and and uh, use their assets to get better. Um, but I don't know, eighty two games just it it also seems sort of uh, a little superfluous. You know, it, it seems like we could we could cut it down. In this series, the Celtics have run into the unstoppable force that is LeBron James. This year, he's putting up ridiculous numbers, numbers that we've pretty much never seen before. And it seems like it's a refrain that we see every single season that LeBron just turns it on during the playoffs and looks like the best player in the league by far. 
everybody after the season is over wonders how he doesn't run away with the MVP award every year. Do you think that's going to continue again this season? That we we sit back and say, oh, come on, this guy should have won it. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose so. But uh, I, I don't I, I if I'm picking right now, I pick the Warriors to win. Um, and uh, I think uh, people are quick to forget that, uh, you know, when the Warriors were up three one in the 2016 finals, um, that LeBron was not on this pedestal and uh, and. People questioned, uh, NBA experts, people who've been around this uh, league for a long, long time, covering it for a long, long time. You know, I sat, I I happened to be lucky enough to be at game five. It was the one game I went to in the finals. So I was at game five and uh, sitting around pregame, many, many people thought, well, this is, this is, this is peak LeBron. I mean, this is it. It's over for him. He can't get by the Warriors. He just doesn't have a, a finishing move around the rim. He was really struggling up against Draymond Green. Um, and uh, that's it. This is 31-year-old LeBron. He just doesn't have the handles. He, does, he doesn't have the closing abilities. So Draymond Green gets suspended. And we know how it turned out. LeBron and Kyrie started going for 40-plus back and forth. And they had all the confidence in the world. Uh, so... I mean, really, Lauren, I think what it comes down to is what happens uh, in June, in, in, in game four, five, six, as that series goes on. And that's who will be classified as the, uh, the best player. Uh, I think LeBron is at his peak powers right now. I think those three games, game five, six, and seven, um, elevated him to another level where he just, he's running over teams now. He didn't, he didn't used to do this. Like, he's, he's had incredible uh, playoff performances but he didn't really steamroll he didn't really come out of the locker room and just you know dominate in every aspect of the game i think he's you know the best version of himself most comfortable he's ever been with himself uh so that's why this series i should have just used this uh this diatribe earlier when when talking about them meeting uh, for the third time that's why this series is so uh, so promising. It, this is, I, I think, again, peak LeBron versus you know, pretty, pretty close to peak Curry and, and peak Durant. So uh, that's that's why I'm peaking, uh, or picking the Warriors. I think they have some, um, you know, four All Stars that can put up, you know, between twenty and thirty a night, and and they're just a a touch better uh, than the Cavs uh, offensively. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, would you like to add a games prediction to that Warriors pick? <laughs> no, no, too far. That's way too far, Lauren. I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> there were questions all season that seemed to be to have been put to rest about whether Cleveland could actually flip the switch. They did look more vulnerable going into the playoffs than we've probably ever seen before for a LeBron team. But it seems like they silenced their doubters with their performance, at least against the Raptors last series. Other than just LeBron obviously dominating, which we've talked about a lot, what do you think has been the biggest change? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I don't really, I really, I just, you're, you're, you're right. They seem mo- more vulnerable, but these, these guys are just so in tune with how they play. And that's what a championship will do for you. Uh, you know, I don't know if they could do this year in and year out, uh, how long they could do this for. But 
it's, it, it seems like they they know them their their bodies, including LeBron, is sort of the the lead guy in that. You know, he is in year fourteen here uh, of his of his career, and uh, you know, I thought that during the season, I thought you know he 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 knows better than we do. Like all this talk about um, guys sitting out games and resting, it, it works to their favor because they know more about their bodies than any era of, of NBA history in NBA history. Uh, so I, I don't think anything can stop. I don't know what's changed other than they're just ready. They just know how to turn it on. And uh, I think Ty Lu has helped in that regard. You know, he was a part of those Lakers that, uh, you know, three-peated there. Um, he was a part of the 2001 Lakers, at least, that after they won the first championship in 2000, they had a, a terrible defense in 2001. They were ranked 21st uh, in, uh, you know, according to some rankings in terms of their, their defense. And then, you know, they went out and won, uh, and they won 15 and one in, in the postseason. Uh, they just turned it on that and Ty Lue's, uh, probably most famous moment is being stepped over by Allen Iverson. But I think he, he is sort of, uh, implanted himself in that locker room, uh, as a guy that has been there and knows that it's okay to sort of, uh, turn it off for a little bit. You know, they, they, they came out of the gate, you know, pretty well. And then, um, they just relaxed <laughs> and, uh, it, it's, I, I, I don't think there's anything, but the fact that they were good. Um, I, I guess they slowed down. I guess they were like 30 and 11 through 41 games. That's where the record was when they fired David Blatt last year. Uh, so, uh, and then they chilled in the second half. I, I don't think there's another explanation, Lauren, other than, they know they're that good. Switching over to the other side of the bracket, the Warriors look unstoppable. They're so dominant as well. We know how many weapons they have, and now Draymond Green's actually hitting threes, so that makes them have even more weapons and be even more difficult to combat defensively. Can any team slow them down even at all? Is, is there anything to do, or you just have to try to outscore them somehow? Yeah, I think it's the latter. Uh, the, the first quarter of the Western Conference Finals when they looked uh, extremely pedestrian. They scored 16 points in the first quarter. I think it was the long layoff and the fact that the Spurs just, um, the Spurs were ready. They were just extremely ready and sometimes you know, and especially when you're that good I think it's just human nature that you're going to kind of relax a little bit. Even if it's for a quarter in the finals, you know the other team is sort of uh, putting their mark on the game. Uh, but it, you know, it, it lasted a half, and uh, I, I guess all you can hope for is that, yeah, you 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 outshoot them, and that Mike Brown or Steve Kerr, whoever the head coach is, doesn't play the death lineup with Draymond Green at at the five because that's their their best lineup, and I, that's what happened in the first half of the Western Conference Finals. There, everyone's sort of getting accustomed to the way the series goes. Uh, so, game one, I think a lot of the times you can sort of flick away. I don't I don't think you can really use that as an indicator for the rest of the series. LeBron often kind of chills out in game one. He surveys the situation. Again, I think it's sort of human nature, uh, even though, you know, they kick the Celtics butt in game one, historically he'll, he'll lose a game one or two. So I think we'll have a feel out uh, game on June 1st. Uh, but um, I think LeBron knows uh, what you just uh, implied, Aaron, is that they just got to score. Um, he, you know, he's, he is obviously uh, fine tuning his team. Uh, as David Griffin did as well around LeBron being the guy who sets up 
every one of those ridiculous shooters, he's going to have, you know, either three or four ridiculously great shooters around him on the floor at all times, whether Tristan Thompson sits or, um, or plays to get those offensive rebounds alongside him, he'll have, you know, Channing Fry, Kyle Korver, J.R. Smith, uh, Kyrie Irving, um, you know, all the way down the line, guys uh, who who can make shots. So, yeah, I, I think they know that they have to uh, – they got to plot threes. That's how they're going to keep up. That, that's how that's how good uh, the Warriors are, and especially with the way the league is in terms of, um, you know, getting your – not allowing your hands on guys on the perimeter. Like, that's how you stop the Warriors is really is to go back to the era of, you know, Gary Payton and, and the glove and, and just, like – stopping them physically stopping them uh because that's the only way you can really do it and uh i think lebron uh, knows that and that team is uh ridiculously well suited to play them let's do a quick diversion from Cavs warriors i don't think we talked about that series enough <laughs> so there's been this huge controversy involving zaza Pachulia and the Kawhi leonard re-injuring of the ankle a lot of people are upset Popovich had some inflammatory remarks. He even compared Zaza's actions to manslaughter. Never thought I would say that. But I'm interested to hear from you in these situations, the balance between trying to gauge a player's intent, which I think is impossible unless we develop new technology, and just recognizing patterns of questionable behavior. This kind of goes back to the Kelly Olenek debate too. It is impossible to gauge. I think that's this is where former NBA players, um, their analysis is extremely useful because, uh, you know, uh, listening to the guys on Inside the NBA um, and, and Shaq basically saying he knew what he was doing. Uh, he knew he was getting into his landing space. Uh, I, I think that those um, opinions are, are probably the best suited for this situation because you and I, we, we all sit here and we, we can, we slow it down a thousand billion times. And obviously it looks like he tried to uh, get into his space when you slow it down, when you watch it on slow-mo right. and the more you, and the more you watch it, how, how can you have a different take? Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and um, the people who, you know, you, you, as we try and gauge it, we say, Oh, this seven footer is, is clumsy. He doesn't often, um, Number one, he's he's not a, a skilled player is, is an argument. Or number two, he doesn't often contest shots on the perimeter, which I just find it's bogus. This is what he does for a living. You know, he runs up and down a court and is uh, is physically, um, you know, a, a specimen. You know, far more than any of us who are sitting down watching him. He knows what he's doing with his body. Whether as long as it doesn't matter how big he is, or 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 that he doesn't have. Uh, you know, um, a particular touch around the rim or, or whatever. He doesn't have a scoring touch. The fact is I, I tend to agree with Shaq. He knew where his, where, where he was on the floor. And uh, I, I agree. We can't really gauge intent ever. And he was an extremely great actor. If he did do it purposefully, cause he was, you know, he turned around went up court and was extremely upset with a foul call. And he was called for a personal foul in the play. But uh, I, I, I find it um, I find it impossible to really gauge, and the fact that the Spurs were up by so much, and they to turn the tide in that series or in that game, something needed to be done. So it's 
it's kind of hard not to think that he did do it uh, on purpose and not necessarily take him out, but Hey, this is their best player. This is an opportunity to send a message. And, um, you know, we can, I could sit here and talk about it till I'm blue in the face, but really, uh, really that that's uh, when, when, I, when a guy like Shaq says, uh, he knew what he was doing. These guys are all in control of their bodies and, and, and nobody on that panel wanted to go as far as saying he purposely injured him. But fact is, they know their bodies and they, they, he wasn't, he wasn't sprinting even out to yeah. him. Um, you know, it was a sort of the, the, the extra step as everybody has, has said, uh, which again, wasn't a very fast step, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't also think he really wants to injure anyone, but again, what I just said about needing to turn the series, this is, this is sports and uh, you know, guys, say like Draymond Green has said in the past, Oh, uh, James Harden's wrist is injured. I'm going to go after it. And it, that's exactly what happens in the locker rooms. Uh, let's, let's take advantage of every advantage we have. And yeah, I guess, as I say that allowing a guy to, to come down from a, a jump shot, isn't really a, a disadvantage, but, um, you know, they had to do what they had to do. And it's, it's, again, I think Zaza is a great guy. It's, I just find it hard to not, to, to contemplate a, a world where a guy who's been in the league for 14 years doesn't know how to operate his body. That being said, he's never done it before. That being said, he has had some incidents in the past. That being said, it was it's impossible to gauge. <laughs> yeah, regardless of the actual intent, I think we can all agree on the big takeaway that we've just, basketball fans everywhere, have been deprived of the gift of seeing Kawhi Leonard in this series. Just such a force, defensively, offensively, one of the league's best players, a contender for the MVP award. It's just a shame, disappointing. Yeah. We're not getting to yeah. see. And I'll just yeah, I'll just jump in and say, he's twenty five. You know, turning twenty six soon. And although he has an NBA Finals MVP on his resume, he hasn't really taken over as a, as the number one guy in the playoffs for the San Antonio Spurs team, because you know he was sort of under the umbrella of Parker. Ginobili and Duncan and now he's you know sort of sidestepping his way out from underneath that umbrella and being the superstar that he is and so I totally agree it, it would have been fun to see him go up against the best as uh you know extremely healthy I, I guess I guess I questioned the the mental toughness of the Spurs earlier in game two it, it happens at times uh, where they give up games and now I'm starting to question whether or not they'll actually bounce back this weekend when they play so it's uh it's we could see that Kawhi that you're asking for, Aaron, even even despite the injuries. Yeah, definitely possible. And so young, it's going to be great for a long time. There was one thing that developed before our interview news um, of the all NBA teams. Paul George and Gordon Hayward neither made. And that could potentially have huge implications, not only for the contracts that they could be offered by their current team, but also that could shake up the league if either of them is poached by another team. Just give us a little more context on the importance of that. And if you like the rule that links the all NBA designation to contract size. I think it has to be changed. It doesn't really make any logical sense. I do like the idea that Gordon Hayward and Paul George can be paid more by the teams that they're 
drafted by or just the fact the teams that they're on a smaller market team a smaller market team has far more power uh, because they can offer more money to the guys that they currently have on the roster using the Larry Bird rights. Love that, but the fact that it's tied uh, to things on the resume it doesn't it it doesn't really make much sense. So the fact that that he didn't make an All NBA team uh, either of those guys it. Uh, it leads you to believe that there's more of a chance that the Lakers can obtain Paul George because the money isn't um, all that different. Obviously you can get uh, an extra year on your, with your current team, but uh, it reduces the amount of money. Um, yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. I think it, it's time they disconnect those, those two factors. Tass, I know you're a busy man right now, but before we let you go, I just have one more question for you. It has to do with an article that Alex Kennedy wrote on Hoopsite covering the draft combine that listed the weirdest questions that the players at the combine were asked by teams in interviews. Now, I'm not going to ask you how you hope to die, but your program, The Starters, is also known for asking some offbeat questions to players and personnel in the NBA. What are some of your favorite responses that you've gotten? Oh, yeah, we've uh, we've asked some weird ones. Um, We asked everybody at the All-Star Weekend whether or not they thought Russell Westbrook was a cat or a dog and um, some great responses. I think the best was from Russell though, who basically had his back turned to me the entire time I was asking him a question, very cat-like. And then uh, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't call himself a cat though. He called himself a dog, Uh, a wolf actually. Um, Again, as he was sort of slouched away from me. So that was fun. Uh, I asked Dirk Nowitzki what sound a pelican makes without skipping a beat. He went, <laughs> something to that effect. Uh, <laughs> I made Kevin Garnett laugh, uh, which was, was great. We, we were talking, we were talking about, uh, Lamar Odom and, uh, Chloe Kardashian had come out with a scent, uh, a cologne perfume, uh, called unbreakable. And he just saw the image ad and laughed. So I didn't really make him laugh, but he laughed and that was cool. <laughs> um, yeah, those are some of my favorite, uh, favorite moments. Yeah. To me, Russell Westbrook personality wise, definitely a cat, but <laughs> I know he'd like to differ. Thank you so much again for joining us today, Tass. We had a great time. All right, guys.